let's turn our attention to the word of the Lord. We're in Jeremiah again, no surprise, uh, chapters 40 and 41. And as you're turning there, I'd like to take a quick moment to recap where we're at in Jeremiah. We spent 10 months, and we've got about two more months to go, uh, watching Jeremiah declaring warnings and calls to repentance and judgment upon Judah. And then last week, it all came to a head. Uh, judgment finally was carried out upon Jerusalem. The Chaldeans were thorough uh, as advertised, and they killed a large percentage of the population. And those that they didn't kill, uh, they took as captives and deported. And then after looting the city and the temple, they burned everything to the ground. And they did this at every stop in their conquest in the land, so there's just widespread devastation. And so now that the judgment has come, the question is, what now? Since there's a lot of text to cover in two chapters, uh, I'll be reading it as we go along and summarizing a little bit to save time. So let's pray. Let's get going. Father, we rejoice uh, that we have the great blessing of your word to guide us, to teach us, and to sanctify us. We thank you for the picture it paints of you, of your unfailing patience with sinners and the grace you pour upon us at every turn. Father, we come needing to hear from you this morning, and most of us go through our weeks forgetting the impact of the great truths of the gospel, so now we pray that you would remind us of those truths, that we would come afresh to the realities of, your, of our sin and your grace. Transform us through your word, we pray. Amen. Okay, so this morning, I would like to start with reality checks. Uh, we don't often like reality checks. Uh, they often ground us in, uh, back into sort of uncomfortable and unpleasant truths about the real world that uh, we just don't really like. You know? For instance, I get a reality check every Wednesday at youth group. Whenever we play Ultimate Frisbee or anything remotely physical, uh, I'm confronted with the uncomfortable and unpleasant reality that I'm just wildly out of shape. Right? <laughs> so like the next morning, I'm like, oh gosh. Why did I do that? Why did I play so hard? And on top of it, on top of all of that, since I think that I can still sort of play at the level of my mid-20s, uh, I get a you know, further reality check of like, man, you are really just foolish, Frank. Why did I think that I could do that? And I roll out of the bed like aching and sore and all of that. And so the long and the short of it is I'm out of shape and I try to, uh, you know, play at a level that I can't play at anymore because I'm not of an age where I can just like roll out of bed and like do a 5K, right? Which I actually did in, in college, not fun. Don't do it, okay? Anyways, but there are all, like that's a negative rea reality check, something that we don't particularly like. But there are also positive reality checks. So for instance, um, we're reminded you know, anew of something that's positive, that we're blessed beyond belief. And like an instance of that is, let's say you're, you're coming home after a long day and frustrating day at, at the office, and your kids, they greet you at the door with just smiles and giggles and giant hugs, and they're just so excited to see you. And that's just a, just a pleasant reality check of the fact that, yes, you've had a hard day, but you are blessed beyond belief, that you are loved beyond you could possibly imagine. And birthdays can also be like this, right? You know, have a surprise birthday, and um, all your friends and your family show up, and you're like, wow, I, didn't, I wasn't expecting that. I'm, I'm reminded anew of this foundational truth, this bedrock truth that is just 
true, right? That we are loved beyond compare. And so reality checks are, are just in general, just these reminders of a truth that we've forgotten, doubted, or simply not paid attention to. And they bring us back um, to these truths and they ground us in their realities, okay? And so as we read how the sort of post-judgment chaos is sorted out, we're going to find that Jeremiah and his readers and all of those that were with him in this sort of post-judgment time, they're going to get two big reality checks that will ground them into two big truths for the exilic period that will point to Jesus. And so, not surprisingly, since there's two big truths, you can, uh, you can guess that there are going to be two sections. This passage divide, divides neatly into two sections. Each one will give us a reality check. And so the first section is verses 1 through 12 in chapter 40. And the second runs from uh, verse 13 in chapter 40 to uh, the end of 41. So let's look at our first section. Uh, starting with verse 1 in uh, Jeremiah 40, reading all the way to verse 12. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah. When he took him bound in chains along with all the captives of Jer Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon, the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God pronounced this disaster against this place. The Lord has brought it about and has done as he said. Because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey his voice, this thing has come upon you. Now behold, I release you today from the chains on your hands. If, if it seems good to you, come with me to Babylon. Come, and I will look after you well. But if it seems wrong for, to you to come with me to Babylon, do not come. See, the whole land is before you. Go wherever you think it is good and right to go. If you remain, then return to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, who the king of Babylon appointed governor of the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people, or go wherever you think it right to go. So the captain of the guard gave him an allowance of food and a present, and let him go. Then Jeremiah went to Gedaliah the son of Ahikam at Mizpah, and lived with him among the people who were left in the land. When all the captains of the forces in the open country and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah the son of Ahikam governor in the land and had committed to him men, women, and children, those of the poorest of the land who had not been taken into exile to Babylon, they went to Gedaliah at Mizpah. And then we skip a whole bunch of names. Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Shaphan, swore to them and their men saying, do not be afraid to serve the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. As for me, I will dwell at Mizpah to represent you before the Chaldeans who come to us. But as for you, gather wine and summer fruits and oil, and store them in your vessels, and dwell in your cities that you have taken. Likewise, when all the Judeans who were in Moab and among the Ammonites and in Edom and all the other lands heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant in Judah and had appointed Gedaliah the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, as governor over them, then all the Judeans returned from, returned from all the places to which they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah and Mizpah, and they gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. So, what's the first reality check? Well, to see it, we need some context. You know, it's important to remember what just happened in chapter 39. The Babylonians had besieged the, the city for a year and a half. That means for a year and a half, 
they had to experience food rationing, constant fear, and endless fighting. And then a breach was made in the walls. And after a horde of enemy soldiers entered the city, a great slaughter would have ensued. Raping, pillaging would have followed. If you had somehow managed to survive those horrors, you would be able to look forward to being chained up and forced to march to Ramah, which is a couple of miles away, for processing, deportation, and exile. And it's hard to understate just how terrible like all of this would have been to live through. And it's not even all that great for Jeremiah either. You see, we, as we start our passage this morning, we, we, we find Jeremiah in chains with everyone else in Ramah. And so you can't help but wonder if God is really behind all of this. Like, Jeremiah must be thinking, where is God? I thought, I, like, is he really in charge? Just the sheer horror of it all would have planted that sort of seed of doubt. And the question is, is he really going to live up to his promises to Jeremiah and to the people to create for himself and preserve for himself a remnant? a remnant that will sort of preserve the line and that he can be faithful to. And so what happens? Well, Jeremiah gets released from his chains. Uh, Okay, thanks, Lord. And then he's asked where he wants to go. You can just sort of hear Jeremiah's sort of brain working. He's like, wait, what? I thought you guys, the conquerors, will tell me where I end up going. Isn't that the way it works? Like, I'm the conquered, you're the conqueror, you're supposed to tell me where I go. But okay, uh, I think I'll stay, since the people left in this land need me. Okay, great. And then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, gives him an allowance of food and a present. You're like, what? When do the raping, the pillaging, the slaughtering Chaldeans act nice? Like, this is just weird. And you can sort of hear the Lord laughing in the background as he's like looking at Jeremiah trying to process all of the the sort of like, this is a little weird. This isn't the way that I thought this would go. The unexpected graciousness, the provision that is there just sort of screams that this is the Lord's work. And the, the Lord doesn't really stop there with just sort of taking care of Jeremiah. He gives the people godly leadership. You remember those names we skipped over? Those are the commanders of what's left of Judah's military. They've been hiding out as guerrilla fighters uh, and insurgents, and now they have a clear authority figure um, in Gedaliah. And so they come out of their caves to see if Gedaliah is going to be the guy to lead them to victory over the hated Babylonians, over the hated Chaldeans. And the old ideas that resisting the Chaldeans is godly sort of seem to die hard, right? And if that's what they're looking for, they're going to be disappointed. If we look down at verse 9 in chapter 40, Gedaliah is simply echoing Jeremiah's words. The Chaldeans are God's instrument of discipline, and to resist them would be to resist God. And so Gedaliah says, hey, you should serve the Chaldeans. And so he's on board with this idea that that serving the Chaldeans is in line with God's plan. And so he's listened to Jeremiah's words, and he's submitting to God's will, which is a lot more than any of the other kings, more than we could say for any of the other kings that came before Gedaliah. And so, submitting to God's word and God's will, good mark of godly leadership. 
Well, in addition to godly leadership, he gives them abundant provision. As we saw uh, with Jeremiah, the Lord seems to give abundant provision for those that are left, okay? Remember, they've just endured a year and a half long siege, like starvation, no crop planting, all of that. What do they have to look forward to once the siege is lifted? Well, not much, because they haven't had the opportunity to, to plant crops. So what's left? What are they going to do? They're going to they're gonna have nothing. And so the sort of the future is uncertain. But the Lord knows this, and so he provides for them. And he says, okay, you need food. Let me give you an abundant harvest of wine, summer fruits, and oil. And what's more, th these are commercial crops, so whatever is left over after they eat whatever they need, they can sell for a profit. And so the Lord isn't simply content to provide a sort of a subsistence level, but to give them, as verse tells us, a great abundance. And so these first 12 verses are the first reality check that Jeremiah and the people receive. Remember, reality checks ground us into a foundational truth that we've forgotten or doubted. And they've doubted that God will be faithful and God will provide for them. And so what are they told? What do they experience? They experience that God is indeed faithful to his promises. Just when everything points to maybe, just maybe, the Lord forsaking them, he reminds, of his, he reminds them of his promise back in Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31.6 says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or, in be, or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And this is a powerful and foundational truth for God's people, that God the Lord will not leave us or forsake us. And God's presence is very comforting for us. Even in the midst of powerlessness and seemingly hopelessness, God is with us. It also speaks to the graciousness and patience of God. Note that there aren't any qualifications on that promise. God simply promises to always be there, no matter what, even when you're unfaithful. And so Jeremiah and his people get the pleasant, positive reality check, the pleasant reminder that they are loved in the midst of their suffering. The reality check established anew the goodness, the faithfulness, and the grace of God. Okay, so what's the second reality check? We need to keep reading. So we start in uh, chapter 40, verse 13. Now, Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the leaders of the forces in the open country came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, do you know that ba uh, Balas, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to take your life? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, would not believe them. Then Johanan, the son of Korea, spoke secretly to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Please let me go down and strike down Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and no one will know of it. Why should he take your life so that all the Judeans who are gathered around you would be scattered and the remnant of Judah perish? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, said to Johanan, the son of Korea, you shall, not do, you shall not do this thing, for you are speaking falsely of Ishmael. In the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, son of Elishema, of the royal family, one of the chief officers of the king came with 10 men to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, at Mizpah. And they ate bread together there at Mizpah, 
uh, as they ate together, uh, as they ate bread together there at Mishpah, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the ten men with him rose up and struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, with a sword and killed him, whom the king of Babylon had appointed governor in the land. Ishmael also struck down all the Judeans who were with Gedaliah at Mizpah and the Chaldean soldiers who happened to be there. And so after uh, Ishmael kills Gedaliah and his cabinet, he then slaughters a group of pilgrims, this is sort of going on in chapter 41, who were in the wrong place at the wrong time. They had come to pay their respects to Gedaliah as they went to worship for the Feast of Booths at the temple site and to mourn the destruction of the temple at the hands of the Chaldeans. And uh, only some survived by offering up valuable supplies that they had brought with them. And now, since Ishmael certainly can't stay after his heinous crime, he takes captive the whole city of Mizpah, and they march off toward his employers, the Ammonites, and uh, then Johanan and the other military leaders uh, give chase because they don't like what's happened, and they catch up with Ishmael and his forces at Gibeon, which was only three, dot, three miles down the road from Mizpah, so Ishmael doesn't get very far. And then Ishmael manages to slip through Johanan's uh, grasp, and that's the last we hear of Ishmael. And then picking up back at verse, uh, verse 17 in chapter 41, and they went and stayed at Gareth uh, Chimham near Bethlehem, intending to go to Egypt because of the Chaldeans. For they were afraid of them, because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land. So to understand the second reality check, we again need to have some context because, you know, context is king and we need context. So the judgment of Judah and exile by the Babylonians simply isn't a case of a big empire crushing a small kingdom. It's a God-ordained judgment against Judah. We've been hearing about that for 10 months. It should be pretty clear, right? The, the Babylonians are God's instrument of discipline for his people. They've been so bad, so sinful, so idolatrous for so long that the Lord has left no choice but to pull out all the stops to bring down the most severe curses in the covenant. But all of that is for pure, purifying his people. It's for a purpose, right? And the purpose isn't just simply to whack them for their sin, but to call, him, call them back to himself. And the hope is that maybe, just maybe, the people will finally see that doing what is right in their own eyes is foolish. The hope is that the people will finally see that the only way to live for God is to live for God and according to God's commands. And there's hope, you know? Gedaliah seems to be a godly man who listened to Jeremiah. But as we've just read just sort of falls to pieces. Gedaliah is foolish to have ignored the seriousness of the accusations made against Ishmael. He was even more foolish to have welcomed Ishmael into his house with a band of 10 armed men. It's just really dumb. <laughs> and let's talk about how foolish Ishmael is, right? What's gotta be going through Ishmael's head? I mean, Jeremiah takes care to note that Ishmael is of the royal line. So was Ishmael just jealous of Gedaliah uh, being chosen governor over himself? Um, who, and, you know, Ishmael's probably got a claim to the throne, so he thinks that maybe he should rule instead. Or maybe 
Ishmael is just simply overcome by bloodlust and desire to destroy any Babylonians or any Babylonian sympathizers, sympathizers he can get his hands on. Or maybe Ishmael thought that with the backing of the king of Ammon, a longtime enemy of Judah, which doesn't really sort of seem like this is going to go well for him, um, maybe he would be able to take, off, take out Gedaliah and seize the throne for himself, and everything would work out and that he would be the king. But whatever he was thinking, it's monumentally, monumentally foolish in the wider context of things. I mean, Babylon, the world superpower of the day, has just crushed the whole land. What does he think they're going to think about it? I mean, obviously, they're not, they're not going to take kindly to the governor that they've appointed getting assassinated, right? So what's going to happen? They're almost certainly going to march an army down and wipe everybody out or at the very least, punish them severely. And so quite simply, assassinating Gedaliah was the last thing that Judah needed to have happen. It's just as Johanan says in chapter, 41, uh, chapter 40, verse 15, the Judeans around Gedaliah would be scattered and perish at the hands of the Babylonians as punishment for Gedaliah's death. But all of that pales in comparison to what all of this means with, uh, with regards to their relationship with the Lord. Ishmael's treason is clearly sinful. He's fighting against the Babylonians who are God's chosen instruments of discipline. He's murdered Gedaliah in cold blood, and what's more, more he's murdered him over a shared meal. And just sort of ramps up the heinousness of the crime. It's like inviting yourself into somebody's house, and as they're feeding you, killing them. It's just, in, the, in, the, in that day, it would have been unspeakable. But the worst is that in the aftermath of all of these terrible crimes, after Johanan has won back the people, and after Ishmael is left in disgrace in Ammon, the people don't turn to the Lord for protection. They don't turn to the Lord in repentance over what has happened. They don't turn to the Lord to ask them what to ask him what to do in this sort of uncertain time, in this sort of chaotic period. Instead, they pack up and set out for Egypt, hoping that the other world superpower of the day will be a place where the Babylonians can't touch them. And so they're walking back through the wilderness into captivity. What does the Lord say when, when he introduces himself? It is I, the Lord, who delivered you out of the house of Egypt, out of captivity, into the promised land. But they're willingly walking right back into captivity, right back into the oppressors, the old oppressors of the day, and not looking to the Lord. And so they're not thinking in terms of trusting in the Lord for direction and security. And so the reality check for Jeremiah and his readers is that even after all the judgment, after all the exile, it doesn't seem to have changed much of anything. The people are still sinful, and the people have, are still looking to, to live life according to their own wisdom. They're doing what is right in their own eyes, relying on their own wisdom and strength rather than the Lord's. Unless you think that you're any different we're just as bad. How many times have we been selfish and self-absorbed when the situation calls for grace 
and forgiveness and godliness and obedience. See, I see this all the time in my life. I have two small children, and they seem to conspire against uh, my wife and I to keep us from sleeping, and so we're really tired all the time, right? And on top of that, they're willful little children, and so they want what they want, and when we don't give them that, they yell at us, right? If ever there were a time for, like, graciousness to my wife, Sarah, if there's ever a time for, like, caring for her in, like, a way that goes beyond, you know, just what's called of me in my normal marriage vows to love her well, if ever a time that I would, like, you know, just be like, it's okay, Sarah, like, we're all really tired, and to be, like, to try to grease the wheels with grace, now would be the time. And I'm not like that. <laughs> what do I do when I'm tired? When the, ki the kids have kept us all up all night and I'm, I'm grouchy. I'm self-absorbed and like I argue, I snap, I complain. The whole list, right? That's what I'm like. And surprise, I know the gospel. I've seen it with my own eyes. I know what I'm supposed to do and I don't do it. The issue isn't that I fail to know what is right. The issue is that in the heart of hearts, in my heart of hearts, in the core of who I am, I just simply don't want it. I want to do it my way. And I can't think beyond my, in, my immediate circumstances. I don't have a gospel point of view, a gospel sort of perspective. I can only think about, I'm really tired, they're yelling at me, and Sarah hasn't done X, Y, or Z of which is probably my responsibility to do X, Y, or Z anyways, and I just don't want to do it, I'm just blame shifting, okay? And so the problem isn't with her, it's with me. It's just as Paul says in Romans 7, I'd like to do what, what is right, but I don't do it. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And so I have a problem. I have a God who loves me faithfully, but I am faithfully rejecting him because of who I am, that I want to do it my own way. And so what can be done? There's really only one solution. We need to be changed. We need to be different people, wholly transformed, in fact. And we can't be the ones to do it, of course. God is going to do it himself. And so we turn to another one of God's promises that he will be faithful to. And this one comes while the people are still in exile from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, though I remove them far from among the nations, far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, yet I have been a sanctuary for them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord, God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they might walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And what a great promise that is. 
And it's already been fulfilled in Christ, too. If we look at uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is, present tense, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, past tense. It has already happened. It has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so we end up where we usually end up, at the foot of the cross. You see, the cross is where all the promises of God and the realities of our sinfulness, they meet. They meet at the cross. We who are big, big sinners watch as Jesus shows that God is faithful to his promises as he hangs on a cross for us, as he hangs on a cross for our sins. And this is where we watch as Jesus takes on our sinfulness and pays for it on our behalf. That's our new reality, a reality that gives us a check. And so the gospel should always be a reality check for you and for me. That it tells us that we are people who are sinners through and through, who don't seem to learn our lesson, regardless of the disciplines the Lord sends our way. And yet, we are people that are made new in Christ. And so it is both a positive and a negative reality check at the same time. It addresses the whole sort of spectrum of experience. If you're really prideful and sinful and self-absorbed, the, the gospel calls you to rem remember that you're a sinner in need of grace. It's really hard to be prideful when you remember that you're a sinner in need of grace. Are you really insecure and think that you're worthless? Well, the gospel calls you to remember that though, yes, you are a big, big sinner, you are loved beyond what you could possibly imagine. That Jesus died for you on a cross while you were totally messed up. And for everything in, in between, from pride on one hand to just worthless on the other, and everything in between, the gospel calls you to remember that while you are a sinner, you are wholly redeemed and completely redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And so let us make the gospel a regular reality check in our lives. How easily we forget to look at the gospel. How quickly we get caught up in the disappointments and sufferings of normal, mundane life. It's hard for us sometimes to sort of put ourselves in the shoes of the Judeans in the time of Jeremiah. Because we don't have the Babylonians coming down to kill us. Right? We don't have that threat. But what we do have is we do have the threat of our sin. Right? We do have sort of the temptation to look at our, our lives and the, the sort of the normal mundane grind of it all and to get caught up in it and to forget what the Lord says about that grind, what the gospel says in the midst of that grind. And so this is why the Bible should be an integral part of our lives, because every page of this book points to the gospel, to the reality check that we so desperately need. This is why coming to church is an integral part of our lives. We need to be transformed as we watch other living, transformed people live. That's why the church, not just coming to church, but all of you are important to me. I need to see that the gospel does, in fact, transform. 
that what is true of you can be, in fact, true of me, too. And this is why we need the Holy Spirit. Because he's the one who transforms us bit by bit, day by day, hour by hour. He's the one who is always with us and will never forsake us. He's the one calling us to account for our sins and to also to the grace that we have in Christ. And he is the one who enables us to listen well to the message of the Bible and of our godly friends, both of whom point us to Jesus. Reality checks only work if we look at them, if we recognize them. And the gospel is a reality check for us. So let us look at the gospel regularly because we need it. Every day that I don't start looking at the Bible, looking at the truths of the gospel is every day that I see myself sinning more and more and more and more. And the days that I do start off with the Lord, they tend to go a little bit better. Tend to. I'm still sinful, but hopefully a little less. I'm certainly far more cognizant of the grace and mercy that I have in Christ Jesus. And so this morning, it's not rocket science. Let's look at the gospel. That's why we've come here this morning, is to look at the gospel and be reminded of those foundational truths, that one, we're a sinner, and two, we have a great Savior. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for stories like this that remind us that you are faithful and that we are sinful and that these stories point us to you, that point us to the reality that we have seen your faithfulness and our sinfulness taken care of at the same place, at the cross, that you have worked your faithfulness to take away our sin to give us new life, to give us grace that we do not deserve. Lord, we rejoice in the fact that even now, this church that you have raised up is the remnant that you spoke of in Jeremiah, that you have preserved for yourself a people, and that you are winning for yourself countless more people through this imperfect, sinful church. And Lord, we ask that you would transform us, that you would wholly change us, that you would make us live in light of the truths that we see in the gospel, that we are now a new creation, and that we are no longer the old, but we are the new. So Lord, uh, help us to look at your gospel, to be transformed by it, to love you more because of it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. The benediction this morning comes from Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. We'll see you.